Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise reading to you the Monday, October 16th, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, a high of 58 with a low of 49, clouds and sun with a shower in spots. On Tuesday, a high of 60 with a low of 46, mostly cloudy with a shower in the area. On Wednesday, a high of 64 with a low of 50, showers around in the a.m., partly sunny. On Thursday, a high of 67 with a low of 54, partly sunny and delightful. And on Friday, a high of 67 with a low of 59, turning out cloudy. The sun will rise today at 6.54 a.m., set at 5.59 p.m. for a total of 11 hours and 5 minutes of daylight. In the lottery, the numbers game Dated Sunday, October 15th, midday, 6672. Again, 6672. The numbers game, Sunday, October 15th, evening, 5172. Again, 5172. Mass cash for Sunday, October 15th, 110. 26, 28, 32. Again, 1, 10, 26, 28, 32. And lucky for life, dated Sunday, October 15th. 4, 10, 14, 38, 42. With a lucky ball of 1. Again, 4, 10, 14, 38, 42 with a lucky ball of one. On the front page. Shucking for the crowd in Wellfleet, there is a photograph of a man with his hands in the air and a big crowd in front of him. And it reads, Chris Catucci of Smithfield, Rhode Island, raises his hands after finishing his shucking in the final round of the Wellfleet Oysterfest Shucking Contest. He was competing against John DeJog of South Thorbury, Canada. It looks like a great crowd and a very fun day. The first front page story. We're experts in that area. Unlike the big boys, we need a vacation offers seasonal Cape renters local expertise. By Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. What sets we need a vacation apart from Airbnb and VRBO is the niche market it's created. A local business run by a local couple that know and love the Cape and Islands and 12 staff members who provide gobs of customer service, according to co-founder Jeffrey Talmadge. This past Saturday, Jeffrey and Joan Talmadge held a forum at Doubletree and Hyannis for homeowners. Part presentation, part question and answer session, and part meet and greet. The event drew 120 registered participants, Talmadge said. We're a local business. The company is based in Orleans. 
We're experts in that area, unlike the big boys. They don't know Cape Cod from Cape Hatteras. We know it, love it, and live here. We've been doing it a long time. That's our niche. We Need has 3,800 to 4,000 properties for potential renters to choose from, depending on the season. Peak season is summer, but some properties are available year-round. The choices are wide ranging from beach bungalows to seaside mansions, rustic cabins to newly constructed homes. Rentals are available by the day, week, or month. From helping homeowners set rental rates to helping them deal with difficult situations, Talmadge says it's the personal touch they can offer clients that the big online rental platforms can't. They don't charge vacationers or homeowners fees, and they don't make all communication go through their platform, like Airbnb and VRBO do. Homeowners pay for a subscription service that can last from one month to two years. 80% of them are annual subscriptions. Richard Santos has rented his Dennis Port home seasonally with We Need for seven years. He also used HomeAway and VRBO. He called the annual fees, booking, commission, and processing fees charged by the big rental platforms significant. In the last three, four, five years, We Need has come on very strongly. In my experience, they've developed more clients than the big ones. It's a wonderful that they've stuck with it. The Talmages started the company in 1997, just one year after VRBO and 11 years before Airbnb. Google hadn't even been born when they set out to create the Cape-centric rental marketing company. It was the time of DSL when most people had dial-up internet service. Downloads could take several minutes. At the start, property listings included only one picture. Now there are multiple photographs of the bedrooms, living areas, kitchens, outdoor areas, and bathrooms. People are discerning. Customers want to see all the important rooms in the house. In the last 26 years, the Talmages have learned how to showcase each property. They've taken photo photos of more than 800 houses to go with listings. Is there enough space in the dining room for a house that sleeps 10? Are there modern amenities? Is there a photo of the beach that the house is close to? Lynn Archbalt and her husband, Rich, have rented out their three-bedroom South Chatham home since 2006. She credits Joan Talmadge with helping the couple market the home on We Need as they learned the ins and outs of the rental marketing world. Information is constantly shared on Zoom meetings, blogs, and emails, she said. The thing I love about them is that they are responsive and interested in you. Setting rental rates, a vexing problem, but the most vexing question is setting rental rates. Talmadge calls it both art and science. The owners get some general advice when they first list their properties, a thumbnail sketch of what to consider. They are advised to do their own search for properties to find prices. They are asked to think about the amenities their property offers like bedrooms and locations. For a fee, We Need offers a deep dive into the price analysis that are like comps that real estate agents do. Pricing is tough. We start with how you did you do last summer. If you were booked by January, you might be underpricing. If you were struggling into June and July, you might be overcharging. There are a few certain things in life, but one thing for sure, people will always want to take vacations. Online rental platforms have been filling the need for do-it-yourselfers and growing as a result. The number of active listings in the vacation rental industry increased by 50% between 2015 and 2020. 
according to the American Hotel and Lodging Association. More than 60% of travelers chose vacation rentals over hotels in 2020, according to a survey done by TripAdvisor. Respondents reported that rentals offered more space, flexibility, privacy, and cost savings. Most of the renters, 97%, using We Need come from the U.S., with 70% to 75% living within four driving hours of Cape Cod, Talmadge said. Most are from Massachusetts. Many used the service because they attended school in the area and spent time on the Cape when they were here. We Need subscription service pays for newsletters, blogs, and social media posts to boost engagement for homeowners. The Talmages count their membership with the Cape's Chamber of Commerce as a big part of their success, and unlike some rental platforms, We Need allows conversations between renters and homeowners. Talmage said those conversations are very important to property owners who want to know who is going to rent their house before the deal is made. We never lock down the communication, he said. It's just the wrong thing to do. In the Cape and Islands section, trying to photograph both sides of an issue in one image. By Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Red and blue, pro and con, black and white, the list goes on and on these days. Big issues in the year 2023 have entrenched supporters. There is a tug of war played out daily in mainstream media and even more passionately on social media sites. As a child of the 1960s, the day's news always arrived right on time in the evening with the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite. The family was brought up to speed by the time he closed each broadcast with his famous sign-off, and that's the way it is. His last night on the CBS anchor desk after 19 years was March 6, 1981. 42 years later, trust is difficult to find. Photographing issues, stories these days, giving fair and equal coverage to both sides is a daunting task. This is even more so when trying to keep everyone happy with just one image. Covering protests is an example. Most of the time, each side lines up literally on opposite sides of a street or rotary, flashing their signs and slogans back and forth. Usually, there is no confrontation outside of horn hawking or finger gestures for motorists. Both, but with each passing month, there is more tension in the air and less common ground. Unfortunately, if you show up with a couple of cameras and a media credential around your neck, the photojournalist is a target. As a boots-on-the-ground representative of the Cape Cod Times, one can become a lightning rod. It usually begins with your paper and then is too liberal. You walk across the street and hear, it is so conservative. My standard response is that I am simply there to document the event and I've always recommended writing a letter to the editor. The soapbox anyone can stand upon to voice their opinions is print. It just can't be anonymous. Less is often more and many times the simplest image can tell a complex story, like an outstretched peace symbol against the sky. As a visual journalist, a quote from Robert Baden-Powell, founder of the Boy Scouts, has always helped me along the photo pathway. If you make list listening and observation your occupation, you will gain much more than you can by talk. Practicing those two skills daily could solve a lot of the world's problems. And included with this story is a photograph of a person with their hand raised in the air 
and their fingers spread apart, forming the peace sign. And written is, a demonstrator flashes a peace sign to passing motorists gathered along the edge of Route 132 by the airport rotary in 2018. Photo by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times. The next Cape and Islands story. Hyannis Chamber will recognize business leaders volunteer October 24th by Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Hyannis. How do you celebrate the connection between business, community, and goodwill? With food, fun, and a nod to Hawaiian culture. That's the plan Greater Hyannis Chamber of Commerce President and CEO, Marty Brummel, and the Board of Directors will use when they hold the Chamber's 41st annual meeting on October 24th. Huli Huli Chicken and Hawaiian Pot Roast will be on the menu in honor of John Cotton's three-week volunteer mission to Maui. Cotton is Vice President, Commercial Loans at Rockland Trust, a member of the Chamber's Board of Directors, and Select Board Chairman in Mashpee. He is also an American Red Cross volunteer. In the aftermath of the brutal wildfires in Maui, he and his son Christian went to Lahaina area to help. Winners of Business of the Year, Small Business of the Year, Henry C. Farnham, Unsung Hero Award, JFK Community Service Award, and Citizen of the Year will be recognized. They are respectively Copeland Chevrolet and Copeland Subaru, Caribbean Lounge, Jane Walsh of Redfish Bluefish, Cape Cod Classics Car Club, and Joseph Keller. We try to break it down into different categories to recognize people, Brummel said, adding that the Chamber wanted to acknowledge Cotton for his service as a Red Cross volunteer. Donations will be accepted for the American Red Cross Southeastern Chapter during this event. On a lighter note, awards will be given for the best tropical attire. To register, you can visit the Hyannis event page. Supplies Running Low in Packed Gaza Hospitals by Najib Jobain, Salma Kulab, and Ravi Nesman, the Associated Press. Medics in Gaza warned Sunday that thousands could die as hospitals packed with wounded people ran desperately low on fuel and basic supplies. Palestinians in the besieged coastal enclave struggled to find food, water, and safety ahead of an expected Israeli ground offensive in the war sparked by Hamas' deadly attack. Israeli forces, supported by a growing deployment of U.S. warships in the region, positioned themselves along Gaza's border and drilled for what Israel said would be a broad campaign to dismantle the militant group. A week of blistering airstrikes have demolished entire neighborhoods but failed to stem militant rocket fire into Israel. The Gaza Health Ministry said, 2,670 Palestinians have been killed and 9,600 wounded since the fighting erupted more than in 2014 Gaza War, which lasted over six weeks. That makes this the deadliest of the five Gaza Wars for both sides. More than 1,400 Israelis were killed, the vast majority of them civilians in Hamas, October 7th assault. At least 155 others, including children, were captured by the Hamas and taken into Gaza, according to Israel. It's also the deadliest war for Israel since the 1973 conflict with Egypt and Syria. The U.S. State Department said Secretary of State Antonio Blinken would return to Israel on Monday after completing a frantic six-country tour through Arab nations aimed at preventing the fighting from igniting a broader regional conflict. 
fighting along Israeli's border with Lebanon, which has flared since the start of the latest Gaza war, intensified Sunday with Hezbollah militants firing rockets and anti-tank missiles and Israel responding with airstrikes and shelling. The Israeli military also reported shooting at one of its border posts. The fighting killed at least one person on the Israeli side and wounded several on both sides of the border. A spokeswoman for Hezbollah, Reina Shali, said the increased fighting represents a warning and does not mean Hezbollah has decided to enter the war. With the situation in Gaza growing increasingly desperate, the U.S. named David Satterfield, the former U.S. ambassador to Turkey, with years of experience in Mideast diplomacy to be special envoy for Middle East humanitarian issues. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said in a statement Sunday that Satterfield will focus on getting humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in Gaza. Hospitals in Gaza are expected to run out of generator fuel within two days, endangering the lives of thousands of patients, according to the UN. Gaza's sole power plant shut down for lack of fuel after Israel completely sealed off the 25-mile-long territory following the Hamas attack. In Nasser Hospital, the southern town of Khan Yunus, intensive care rooms are packed with wounded patients, most of them children under the age of three. Hundreds of people with severe blast injuries have come to the hospital, where fuel is expected to run out by Monday, said Dr. Mohamed Quandil, a consultant at the critical care complex. There are 35 patients in ICU who require ventilators and another 60 on dialysis. If fuel runs out, it means the whole health system will shut down, as children moaned in pain in the background. All these patients are in danger of death if the, the electricity is cut off. Dr. Hussam Abu Safia, the head of pediatrics at the Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza, said the facility did not evacuate despite Israeli orders. There are seven newborns in the ICU hooked up to ventilators. Evacuating would mean death for them and other patients under our care. Ahmad al-Mandahiri, the regional director of the World Health Organization, said hospitals were able to move some mobile patients out of the north, but most patients can't be evacuated. Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, the territory's largest, said it would bury 100 bodies in a mass grave as an emergency measure after its morgue overflowed. Tens of thousands of people seeking safety have gathered in the hospital compound. Gaza was already in a humanitarian crisis due to a growing shortage of water and medical supplies caused by the Israeli siege. An unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding under our eyes, said Felipe Lazaharni, the head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Sullivan told CNN that Israeli officials told him they had turned the water back on in southern Gaza. Israeli's Minister of Energy and Water, Israeli Katz, said in a statement that water has been restored at one specific point in Gaza. A spokesman said the location was outside Khan Yunus. Aid workers in Gaza said they had not yet seen evidence the water was back. Israel has ordered more than one million Palestinians, almost half of the territory's population, to move south. The military said it's trying to clear way civilians ahead of a major campaign against Hamas in the north, where it says the militants have extensive networks of tunnels, bunkers, and rocket launchers. Hamas urged people to stay in their homes, and the Israeli military released photos, it said, 
it showed a Hamas roadblock preventing traffic from moving south. Nevertheless, more than 600,000 people have evacuated the Gaza City area, said Israeli's chief military spokesman Daniel Hagari. About 500,000 people, nearly one quarter of Gaza's population, were taking refuge in the United Nations schools and other facilities across the territory. Where water supplies were dwindling, Gaza is running dry. The agency says an estimated 1 million people have been displaced in Gaza in a single week. The U.S. has been trying to broker a deal to reopen Egypt's Rafah crossing with Gaza to follow allow Americans and other foreigners to leave and humanitarian aid amassed on the Egyptian side to be brought in. The crossing, which was closed because of airstrikes early in the war, has yet to reopen. Israel has said the siege will only be lifted when the captives are returned. Hamas rocket attacks on Israel continued Sunday, spurring a broader evacuation from the southern Israeli city of Sidorat. The city is about 34,000 people, sits about a mile from Gaza, and has been a frequent rocket target. The kids are traumatized. They can't sleep at night, Yossi Edry told Channel 13 before boarding a bus. The military said Sunday an airstrike in southern Gaza has killed a Hamas commander blamed for a killing at Nirim, one of the several communities Hamas has attacked in southern Israel. Israel said it struck over 100 military targets overnight, including command senders and rocket launchers. Israel's called up some 360,000 military reserves and amassed troops and tanks along the border with Gaza. Israeli officials gave no timetable for a ground invasion. The next story. Venezuelans' U.S. status makes it easier to work by Gisela Salomon, the Associated Press, Miami. After receiving death threats for openly opposing Venezuela's socialist government, Victor Macedo and his wife fled, staying for a time in Spain before coming to the U.S. For nearly two years, they have lived in Florida with the support of family and friends as they tried to build a better life for their two children. They are among several hundred thousand Venezuelans living in the U.S. whose lives could change. Now that President Joe Biden's administration is offering them temporary legal status, that makes it easier for them to get authorization to work in the U.S. We have 18 months of peace of mind without the fear of being deported. That is the greatest benefit and the greatest fear, said Macedo, 38, who dreams of opening a bakery like the one his father had in Venezuela. We can now begin to earn income as God intended. We no longer depend on the relatives we have here. To qualify for temporary protected status, Venezuelans must have arrived in the U.S. by July 31st. Meanwhile, the Biden administration also recently announced it would restart deportation flights to Venezuela for those without authorization to be in the U.S. Immigration experts and lawyers are urging Venezuelans who will qualify to apply for TPS. It can provide some kind of security and some stability for people in the meantime while they are here in the U.S., said Alicia Mira, an immigration attorney at Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Like many Venezuelans living in the U.S., Macedo and his wife have applied for asylum, but the process is long and does not guarantee success. Between October 2022 and August 2023, immigration judges completed more than 3,800 asylum cases, and nearly a third were denied, according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse at Syracuse University. Macedo and his wife pray they are approved for TPS while they wait, 
Protected status not only makes it easier to work, but suspends deportation until an asylum application case is resolved. People seeking asylum can apply for work permits 150 days after submitting an application. We will go ahead with both cases. They go hand in hand. We have another extra opportunity with TPS for residency and legal status here in the U.S. At least 7.3 million people have fled Venezuela in the past decade during political, economic, and humanitarian crisis. Most settled in neighboring countries in Latin America, but many came to the U.S. in the past three years through the dangerous Darien Gap, a stretch of jungle dividing Colombia and Panama. The Department of Homeland Security's recent announcement of status for 472,000 Venezuelans came on top of more than 242,000 who were previously covered under TPS grants in 2021 and 2022. In the past 11 months, U.S. Border Patrol agents had more than 199,500 encounters with Venezuelans in the southern border compared with 2,700 in all 2020. Macedo and his wife, Anna Marino, left Venezuela in 2016 after Marino was confronted by two men for refusing to donate to a political campaign of ruling party candidates. One of the men struck Marino in the face and she lost a pregnancy the next day, while Macedo received death threats for not supporting the government's candidates. They initially came to the U.S. but were deterred by a long asylum process and went to Spain, which is home to a large Venezuelan community. But Macedo said he was threatened there by the same groups that persecuted him in his home country. The family flew to Mexico, then crossed the Rio Grande to enter the U.S., with Macedo carrying his three-year-old daughter on his shoulders. His wife was helped by their 11-year-old son, who saved her from drowning. Like Macedo, Venezuelan Daisy Morari and her family crossed the border illegally, surrendered to U.S. authorities, requested asylum. They are also seeking temporary protected status. They left Venezuela five years ago after parliamentary forces entered their home and threatened to kill them for participating in street demonstrations demanding freedom of expression and free elections, Maury 41 said. She was imprisoned for several days. Her husband was hospitalized with injuries. They first went to Ecuador but did not feel safe there. They crossed six countries by foot and used horses, buses, and boats to get to the U.S. with their seven-year-old daughter in August 2021. It was worth it, that suffering, that fear, that terror, that agony, said Maury, who also worked as an assistant at a multinational company in Venezuela. TPS is a guarantee that you have status and will not be deported. Not everyone seeking TPS has crossed into the U.S. illegally. Karen Arez, a 40-year-old single mother, came using a tourist visa in June. Inez, an independent reporter working for a Venezuelan news site, feared being arrested for covering the news in Maracaibo and decided to explore opportunities in the U.S. She and her 10-year-old son stayed with an aunt in Orlando, Florida. She left behind her 13-year-old twins until trying to find sponsors to apply for humanitarian parole. One of the legal paths Venezuelans have used to enter the U.S. Her family said they had already had sponsored other people, so hers were considering an asylum request. Going back to Venezuela is not an option, Inez said. I have never imagined that I would have such a good luck to meet the requirements for TPS. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, 
October 16th. There are no obituaries listed for today. Back to our stories. Nobel winner talks on gender pay gap. Moms face penalty in workforce, data shows. By Swampna Remswamy, USA Today. Sapna Arvind had already dreamed of having a big career in finance. My dad, when I was a child, would say, I want to see you on CNBC, she said. So I did my undergrad in finance at New York University with those words ringing in my ears. Arvin embarked on a career in asset management in New York City after getting an MBA in finance from MIT, Sloan School of Management in Cambridge, Massachusetts. By her mid-30s, she was also a mother of two children under the age of 10. While she powered through the early years as a young mother and professional woman, by the time her younger child was ready for kindergarten, she didn't want to do it anymore. Commuting back to her home in the suburbs at 8 p.m. just as the kids were getting ready for bed. She decided to quit her job. Her husband, an investment banker, would be the sole breadwinner while she'd be the primary on-call parent. It's a decision scores of college-educated women have made over the years in which, in part, explains why the gender earnings gap is wider among college-educated women compared with those without a college degree. In 2022, for example, women with at least a bachelor's degree earned 79% as much as men who were college graduates, while women who were high school graduates earned 81% as much as men in the same level of education, according to the Pew Research Center. It's a topic Harvard professor Claudia Golden, 77, who last week received the Nobel Prize in Economics for her groundbreaking work on women in the labor market, has spent decades studying. A penalty for motherhood. After collecting and analyzing 200 years of U.S. historical data to demonstrate how and why gender differences in earnings and employment rates have changed over time, Golden found that while historically the wage gap could be explained through differences in education and occupational choices, now the gap between men and women in the same profession widens after the birth of their first child. Her research identified a trend. Differences in both pay and the ability to stay in the workforce reflect differences in the division of unpaid caregiving responsibilities. While mothers make less than the non-mothers because of the reduced number of hours they work, fathers make more than non-fathers over the course of their careers. Quite frankly, it's the most disturbing part of this, Golden said, told USA Today in a phone interview on October 10th. Why is it that fathers are doing better than non-fathers even though they have kids? Why is the fatherhood premium growing over time? She asked, adding that the price of being a woman stays constant due to social norms around gender, which is also somewhat disturbing. Golden said women with children enable men with children to achieve more. Men are able to step forward because women step backward. She offered another explanation as well. The American notion of masculinity that places a self-imposed pressure to achieve more when you are a father. This internal sense that fathers have that they really have to run fast because they are breadwinners. Greedy, work more flexible. When it comes to college-educated women, high-salary jobs with long, inflexible hours exacerbate the gender pay gap. When women take on greedy work, which pays disproportionately more when they work a greater number of hours or have less control over those hours, they tend not to last long because they opt out to raise families. One of the big hurdles is business travel. 
It's an enormous barrier to individuals with care responsibilities, making greedy jobs more flexible. For example, requiring Zoom meetings with Tokyo clients every other weekend rather than actual travel to Tokyo would allow more women to take them, Golden said. Carol Fishman Cohen, a Pomona College and Harvard Business School graduate, took an 11-year break in the 1990s to raise her four children in a Boston suburb before going back to work full-time at Bain Capital. Cohen's husband, who had been working at a law firm for 20 years, had a demanding job, but it required little travel. This and the fact that he that she had a nanny to take care of the children, ages 5 to 11, enabled her to return to a high-pressure job that required travel. My husband handled things like doctor visits, sick kids, and unexpected events. She is now the founder and CEO of Career Reentry from iRelaunch, which provides the iRelaunch Return to Work conferences and works with companies on career reentry programs. While considering child care costs, couples should evaluate being able to afford child care based on their combined projected income, not based on the incremental income the returning partner is making. Golden says couple equity, where each would share the on-call at home duties and each could also achieve in their career, would help narrow the gap. That would entail leaving a lot of money on the table as each passes up the high-pressure promotion, partner track, or tenure track. The next story, Newsom Signs Law Raising Health Workers' Wages by Adam Beam, the Associated Press, Sacramento, California. California will raise the minimum wage for health care workers to $25 per hour over the next decade under a new law Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom signed Friday. The new law is the second minimum wage increase Newsom has signed. Last month, he signed a law raising the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 per hour. Both wage increases are the result of years of lobbying by labor unions, which have significant sway in the state's Democratic-dominated legislature. Californians saw the courage and commitment of health care workers during the pandemic, and now that same fearlessness and commitment to patients is responsible for a historic investment in the workers who make our health care system strong and accessible to all, said Tia Orr, executive director of the Service Employees International Union California. The wage increase for health care workers reflects a carefully crafted compromise in the final days of the legislative session between the health care industry and labor unions to avoid some expensive ballot initiative campaigns. Several city councils in California have already passed local laws to raise the minimum wage for health care workers. The health care industry then qualified referendums asking voters to block those increases. Labor unions responded by qualifying a ballot initiative in Los Angeles that would limit the maximum salaries for hospital executives. The law Newsom signed Friday would preempt those local minimum wage increases. It was somewhat unexpected for Newsom to sign the laws. His administration had expressed concerns about the bill previously because of how it would impact the state's struggling budget. California's Medicaid program is a major source of revenue for many hospitals. The Newsom administration had warned the wage increase 
would have caused the state to increase its Medicaid payments to hospitals by billions of dollars. Labor unions say raising the wages of health care workers will allow some to leave the state's Medicaid program, plus other government support programs that pay for food and other expenses. A study by the University of California Berkeley Labor Center found almost half of low-wage health care workers and their families use these publicly funded programs. Researchers predicted those savings would offset the costs to the state. The $25 minimum wage had been a point of negotiations between Kaiser Permanente and labor unions, representing about 75,000 workers. Those workers went on strike for three days last week. Both sides announced a tentative deal Friday. The strike came in a year when there have been work stoppages within multiple industries, including transportation, entertainment, and hospitality. The healthcare industry has been confronted with burnout from heavy workloads, a problem greatly exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The next story, Ohio Celebrates Hopewell Sites UNESCO Designation by Julie Carr Smith, The Associated Press, Chillicothe, Ohio. For 400 years, indigenous North Americans flocked to a group of ceremonial sites in what is present-day Ohio to celebrate their culture and honor their dead. On Saturday, the sheer magnitude of the ancient Hopewell culture's reach was lifted up as an enticement to a new set of visitors from around the world. We stand upon the shoulders of geniuses, uncommon geniuses who have gone before us. That's what we are here about today. Chief Glenna Wallace of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma told a crowd gathered at Hopewell Cultural National Historical Park to dedicate eight sites there and elsewhere in southern Ohio that became UNESCO World Heritage Sites last month. She said the honor means that the world now knows of the genius of the Native Americans whom the 84-year-old grew up seeing histories, textbooks, and popular media call savages. Wallace commended the innumerable tribal figures, government officials, and local advocates who made the designation possible, including late author, teacher, and local park ranger Bruce Lombardo, who once said if Julius Caesar had brought a delegation to North America, they would have gone to Chillicothe. That means that the place, this place was the center of North America, the center of culture, the center of happenings, the center for Native Americans, the center for religion, the center for spirituality, the center for love, the center for peace, Wallace said, here in Chillicothe, and that is what Chillicothe represents today. The massive Hopewell ceremonial earthworks, described as part cathedral, part cemetery, and part astronomical observatory, compromise ancient sites spread across 90 miles south and east of Columbus, including one located on the grounds of a private golf course and country club. The designation puts the network of mounds and earthen, earthen structures in the same category as wonders of the world, including Greece's Acropolis, Peru's Machu Picchu, and the Great Wall of China. The presence of materials such as obsidian, mica, seashells, and shark teeth make clear to archaeologists that ceremonies held at the sites some 2,000 to 1,600 years ago attracted indigenous peoples from across the continent. The inscription ceremony took place against the backdrop of Mound City, a sacred gathering place and burial ground that sits just steps from the Scotia River. Four other sites within the historical park, Hopewell Mound Group, Seep Earthworks, Highbanks Park Earthworks, and Hopeton Earthworks, join four ancient earthworks in Nature Preserve in 
Oregonia and Great Circle Earthworks in Heath to compromise to comprise the network. Nita Batiste, Tribal Council Vice Chair of the Alabama Cushada Tribe of Texas, said she worked at the Hopewell Historical Park 36 years ago when they had to beg people to come visit, she said. Many battles have been won since then. Now is the time and to have our traditional, our ancestral sites acknowledged on a world scale is phenomenal. We always have to remember where we came from because if you don't remember, it reminds you. The next story, U.S. military to drain leaky fuel tank facility in Hawaii. Thousands sickened when Pearl Harbor drinking water contaminated by Audrey McAvoy, the Associated Press, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The military this week plans to begin draining fuel from World War II-era underground fuel tanks in Hawaii, nearly two years after the massive facility sickened 6,000 people when it leaked jet fuel into a Pearl Harbor drinking water well. Removing the fuel is a key step towards shutting down the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility as demanded by the state of Hawaii. The November 2021 spill poisoned the Navy's water system serving 93,000 people in and around Joint Base Pearl Harbor. The leak continues to threaten an aquifer used by Honolulu's municipal water utility to serve 400,000 people on Oahu. I want the community to know that my team and I understand the enormity and the significance of this mission, Vice Admiral John Wade, the commander of Joint Task Force Red Hill, said at a news conference. Work to drain the 104 million gallons remaining in the tanks is scheduled to begin Monday. Each tank is 250 feet tall and 100 feet wide. Gravity will feed fuel into fuel lines connected to the lower part of the tanks. The fuel will then flow downhill through pipelines for three miles to a tanker ship waiting at Pearl Harbor Pier. It will take more than two days to fill each tanker. Wade said it would take the three months to remove 99.9% of the fuel, then work will begin to remove a residual amount of an estimated 60,000 to 70,000 gallons that will have accumulated in a low point drain and bend. That work is expected to be finished in the spring. The moment is bittersweet for Lacey Quintero, whose Navy family was among the thousands who suffered health problems after drinking contaminated water in 2021. She's happy the fuel is being removed, but the operation has stirred memories as the two-year anniversary of the spill approaches. The timing of it, coupled with the dangers that are present during defueling, there's a fear, she said. She's concerned that more fuel could spill into the Navy's drinking water well and poison the aquifer. She's also worried about possible explosions. Quintero and her husband, who is in the Navy, and their two children moved to Hawaii in November 2021 from California. They fell sick soon after moving. Her youngest, who was three years old, vomited uncontrollably. The entire family complained of diarrhea and itchy skin. Quintero's arms and legs went numb, and she struggled with chronic fatigue. Her husband is still stationed in Hawaii, but they have moved to private housing off-base, which uses Honolulu's municipal water. Yet she still suffers from stubbing pains, migraines, and skin issues. She has PTSD. Quintero is one of the 6,750 claimants seeking compensation from the U.S. government for what they experienced. Their attorney, Christina Baer, said she claims for the first group of six plaintiffs were due to go to trial in March. 
The spill upset a broad cross-spectrum of Hawaii and precipitated a crisis for the military in the islands. Many native Hawaiians have been angered given the centrality of the water in Hawaii's indigenous tradition. In the People in the News section, Burton will host National Book Awards Ceremony. LeVar Burton will host next month's National Book Awards Ceremony, replacing the original choice, Drew Barrymore, who was dropped because of her decision to resume taping of her show during the writer's strike. The National Book Foundation, which represents the awards, announced Burton's selection Friday. Burton, a longtime advocate for reading, known for his roles in the TV miniseries Roots and in Star Trek The Next Generation, also hosted the ceremony in 2019. It's an honor to return as host of The Biggest Night for Books, especially in a moment when the freedom to read is at risk and literature both needs and deserves our recognition and support, said Burton, who earlier this month served as honorary chair of the Banned Books Week when stores and libraries highlight works that have been challenged or censored. The National Book Awards will take place at Soprani Wall Street in New York City on November 15th, when winners will be announced in five competitive categories. Oprah Winfrey will be the guest speaker and poet Rita Dove will receive a Lifetime Achievement Medal. Willis, not totally verbal but still himself, friend says, Bruce Willis, 68, is not totally verbal while living with front temporal dementia, according to friend Glenn Gordon Karen, but when you're with him, you know that he's Bruce. Karen told the New York Post in an interview published Wednesday, that though the diehard actor's health is failing and language skills are no longer available to him, he's still Bruce. Willis starred in the 1980s TV show Moonlighting, which Karen created. The comedy drama series starring Willis and Sybil Shepherd is now streaming on Hulu, which Karen feels would make Willis very happy. I know he's really happy that the show is going to be available for people, Though Even though he can't tell me that, Karen told The Post. Willis, who was retired from acting, when I got to spend time with him, we talked about it, and I know he's excited. The thing that makes Willis's disease so mind-blowing is that if you've ever spent time with Bruce Willis, there is no one who had any more love of life. He just adored waking up every morning and trying to live life to its fullest. Willis was diagnosed in 2022 with aphasia, which affects how a person communicates, especially using speech. In February, Willis's family announced that the condition had progressed to front temporal dementia. Black Student Disciplined Over Hair Takes Stand by Cheyenne Mumphrey and Annie Ma, the Associated Press. For more than a month, Daryl George, a black high school student in Texas, spent each school day sitting by himself in punishment over his hairstyle. Last week, he was sent to a separate disciplinary program where he's been told he will spend several more weeks away from classmates. In an interview with the Associated Press, George said he has felt discouraged about missing out on his classes and time with the football team. I feel like I'm missing my full experience of being in the classroom, George said Thursday. George, 18, was first pulled from the classroom at his Houston area school in August after school officials said his locks fell below his eyebrows and earlobes and violated the district's dress code. His family argues his hairstyle does not break any rules. 
By the time George is allowed to return to Barbers Hill High School in Mount Bellevue, Texas in November, he will have missed 56 of 67 days of regular classroom instruction to start his junior year. The family has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit alleging the state failed to enforce a new law outlawing discrimination based on hairstyles. But the family said George is not looking to change schools. They want to take a stand at a school that has clashed previously with other black male students over their hairstyles. We have to stand and we have to let them know. No, Daryl's not cutting his hair. No, Daryl is not going to let this go. No, you're not going to run Miss George and her family out of the neighborhood, said Candace Matthews, a civil rights activist who was operating as a spokesperson for the family. After George spent weeks on in-school suspension, his family received a letter from the school principal referring him to the disciplinary program for the dress code violations and other transgressions, violating the tardy policy, disrupting the in-school suspension classroom, and not complying with school directives. Barbers Hill Superintendent Greg Pohl said Friday in an email to the AP that officials cannot disclose the infractions that led to George's current placement, but it was not because of his hair. George's mother, Dashia George, said he once used a profanity to express frustration when the in-school suspension. The family said George also had two tardy violations, but they see the refusal to cut his hair as the root of the issue. They are retaliating, and that's all that it is, said Allie Brooker, the family's attorney. George on Thursday attended his first day at the disciplinary school where he sits in a cubicle and does schoolwork. He is allowed breaks but must stay inside the room. He is able to interact with teachers in the program, but he feels like he's falling behind. I'm just not learning what they're trying to teach me, he said. School systems in Texas have broad discretion over which offenses can result in students being sent to disciplinary alternative education programs, said Renuka Rigi of Texas Appleseed, a social justice advocacy organization, but she said it would be unusual for a student to be transferred over a dress code violation. If a district wants to be really, really harsh, then they can lay that out in their code of conduct, Rigi said. There's a lot of districts here in Texas that still very much have zero tolerance mindset. Daryl George said he hopes to return to how things were. I hope I can start being a kid again, start living my life, start playing football again, and enjoy my year, my last few years in high school, he said. Holloway suspect to plead guilty to extortion. Wednesday sentencing hearing set in Alabama. The Associated Press, Birmingham, Alabama. Court records filed Friday indicate Jordan Vandersloot, the chief suspect in Natalie Holloway's 2005 disappearance, intends to plead guilty in a federal case accusing him of trying to extort money from her missing teen's mother. A federal judge set a Wednesday plea and sentencing hearing for Vandersloot in Birmingham, Alabama. He had previously entered a plea of not guilty in the case. Emails sent to Vandersloot's attorney and a spokeswoman for federal prosecutors were not immediately returned Friday evening. Vandersloot was extradited to Alabama from Peru. He's serving a 28-year sentence after confessing to killing a Peruvian woman in 2010. Holloway went missing during a high school graduation trip with classmates to Aruba. The Alabama teen was last seen leaving a bar with Vandersloot, a student at the International School on the Island. The mysterious disappearance sparked years of news coverage and countless true crime podcasts. Vandersloot was identified as a main suspect and was detained for questioning, but no charges were filed in the case. 
A judge declared Holloway dead, but her body has never been found. U.S. prosecutors say that the 2010 Vandersloot sought money from Beth Holloway to disclose the location of her daughter's body. A grand jury indicted him that year. Toy industry takes on child resilience. Concept gains traction after pandemic isolation. By Anne D'Incenzio, The Associated Press, New York. As more children emerge from the pandemic grappling with mental health issues, their parents are seeking ways for them to build emotional resilience, and toy companies are paying close attention. While still in its early phase, a growing number of toy marketers are embracing MESH, or Mental, Emotional, and Social Health, as a designation for toys that teach kids skills like how to adjust to new challenges, resolve conflict, advocate for themselves, or solve problems. The acronym was first used in child development circles and by the American Camp Association 10 years ago and gained new resonance after the pandemic. Rachel Harmuth, head of Think Fun, a division of toy company Ravensburger and resilience expert and family physician, Deborah Gilboa, formed a mesh task force earlier this year with the goal of getting manufacturers to design toys with emotional resilience in mind and to have retailers market them accordingly. We just need to educate parents and educators just a little bit to know that we could be using their playtime a little bit intentionally. The plan is to certify mesh toys by mid-2024 the same way the Toy Industry Association did for STEAM toys, which emphasize science, tech, engineering, arts, and math. Adrian Appel, a spokeswoman at the Toy Industry Association, notes that mesh is an area it will continue to monitor as it evolves. Many toys that could be considered mesh happen to already be in children's toy chests, like memory games, puppets, certain types of Legos, Pokemon trading games, and Dungeons and Dragons. The concept was highlighted at the toy industry's recent four-day annual show in New York, which featured an abundance of toys that encouraged children to express their feelings with mirrors or puppets. James Zahn, editor-in-chief of the trade publication The Toy Book, noted the bulk of the new toys being developed with Mesh in mind will be out starting next year. But some worry the mesh approach might be end up promising parents something it can't deliver. There's also a risk of companies preying on parents' anxieties about their kids' mental health. My fear is that mesh will be used as the next marketing gimmick, said Chris Byrne, an independent toy analyst. It will create a culture of fear that their children are not developing socially and emotionally, and that's not really the job of the toy industry. Experts say childhood depression and anxiety were climbing for years, but the pandemic unrelenting stress and grief magnified the woes, particularly for those already grappling with mental health issues who were cut off from counselors and other school resources during remote learning. Many educators began emphasizing social-emotional learning in response, which teaches children soft skills like helping them manage their emotions and create positive rapport with others. Dave Anderson, Vice President of the School and Community Programs and Senior Psychologist in the ADHD and Behavior Disorders Center at the Child Mind Institute, applauded the toys industry efforts to likewise address emotional resilience. But he said parents need to be careful about claims that companies may be making. While there's evidence that skills highlighted by a MESH task force can build resilience, there's no evidence that the toys themselves will, he said. The concepts are evidence-based. The toys themselves are not. 
Byrne notes that the skills being highlighted by the MeSH task force are the basics of play, whether it's skateboarding that builds perseverance or learning how to share toys with conflict resolution. In my opinion, if you live in a healthy home and you're having healthy play, your parents are engaged, the MeSH stuff kind of happens automatically. The U.S. toy industry itself has been in need of jolt following a weak year, particularly a lackluster holiday 2022 season when retailers were stuck with a surplus of toys after enjoying a pandemic-induced toy splurge by parents. The malaise has continued so far this year, with toy sales in the U.S. down 8% from January through August, based on Circana's retail tracking service data. For its part, the MeSH Task Force is initially working with specialty stores like Learning Express and small toy companies like Crazy Errands, which has expanded beyond its thinking putty to add activities kits that kids teach kids problem-solving like how magnets work with putty. One game, Think Fun, is marketing Rush Hour, a sliding block logic game that has kids battle traffic gridlock. But large retailers like Amazon are also waking up to the MeSH approach. The rising popularity of mesh toys speaks to the power of play, the important role that toys play in our lives, said Anne Carahill, Amazon's director of toys and games. More than the promise of building emotional resilience, though, mesh is whether the toys themselves will actually be fun. Are my kids going to ask for those kinds of toys for Christmas, Davis asked. I'm going to be really curious and I will keep an eye out for them. And we end our reading with Today in History. Today is Monday, October 16th, the 289th day of 2023. There are 76 days left in the year. On this date in 1758, American lexographer Noah Webster was born in Hartford, Connecticut. In 1793, during the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, was beheaded. In 1859, Radical abolitionist John Brown led a raid on the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry in what was then a part of Western Virginia. Ten of Brown's men were killed and five escaped. Brown and six followers were captured. All were executed. In 1934, Chinese communists under siege by the nationalists began their long march lasting a year from southeastern to northwestern China. In 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis began as President John F. Kennedy was informed that reconnaissance photographs had revealed the presence of missile bases in Cuba. In 1964, China set off its first atomic bomb, codenamed 596, on the Lop-Nur test ground. In 1968, American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos sparked controversy at the Mexico City Olympics by giving black power salutes during a victory ceremony after they'd won gold and bronze medals in the 200-meter race. In 1978, the College of Cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church chose Cardinal Carol Watola to be the new pope. He took the name John Paul II. In 1984, Angelican Bishop Desmond Tutu was named winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his decades of nonviolent struggle for racial equality in South Africa. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Monday, October 16th, 2023, of the Cape Cod Times. Have a great day!